Welcome to Inspire Campfire, a podcast where ordinary people tell their stories of extraordinary adventure. These are campfire stories meant to inspire the rest of us to light the fire within, get outside, follow our dreams, and return to tell our own stories. Ready? Let's strike the match. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Scott Wurzbacher, and today is episode number 79 for this podcast. And we're here celebrating big because there's only one person who could possibly be our guest for this episode. You see, episode 79 is the atomic number for gold and has been the fascination of my great mentor and friend, Karen Dark, who is with us today for the third time on this podcast. You might recall hearing Karen's story on episode seven. And if you haven't, you're going to want to go back and listen to that one. Or maybe you heard her on episode 56 as we recapped our trip together to the kingdom of Bhutan. Karen is an explorer like no other human I've ever met. She's adventured all over the world, and she believes that ability is a state of mind. She's won medals in the Paralympics, including gold in Rio in 2016. She's climbed the Matterhorn in El Capitan. She's crossed the polar ice caps in Greenland and handbiked along the Himalayas and the Ganges River, just to name a few. And today, Karen is here with me to celebrate her Quest 79 mission, the impact it's having on so many others, and her recent expedition to Antarctica, which checks off the last of the seven continents from her list. It is such a great honor that I get to say, Karen, welcome back to the campfire. Thanks, Scott. And thanks for, um, yeah, thanks for celebrating this alignment of 79s. Set a lot of 79s. There are so many 79s to talk about. Um, and I think we should probably just start right with that. Can you tell us what Quest 79 is? It's a community project. It is about encouraging people to get out of their comfort zones and do something that maybe that has that really nice mix of excitement because you really want to do it, but also a little bit of fear and uncertainty because you're not really sure if you can. And it seems a bit scary or maybe a little bit impossible. And so it calls on us to dig a little bit deeper than normal, to step out of our comfort zone, to commit and to see what's possible. And so people have been doing a little challenge for themselves, connected to the number 79. And that's been different for everybody. Sometimes it's been really physical things. So climbing 79 mountains or climbing the same mountain 79 times or going cold water swimming for 79 days. And other times it's been a bit different, like making 79 podcasts. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> or taking 79 days to be really kind to oneself or kind to another person. So really varied quests, depending on where that person's at and maybe what they need or what they're looking to do to do things a bit differently. And when we do things a bit differently and we change our environment or our everyday routines and habits, then it, it's got that wonderful ability to, to help old stuff fall away and, and allow new stuff to come in. We go on a, a journey of discovery and often that journey involves finding something inside of ourselves that we didn't know we had or in the people around us that we'd maybe not been noticing or forgotten about. I call that the inner gold, 79 being the atomic number of gold. And so, yeah, it's created this wonderful um, ripple effect, I think, of people around the world. I'm, I'm loath to even use the word community because everyone's not, I, I'm not very good at spending a lot of time online and building communities and doing all of that, but it's just so nice to know that there's this kind of positive effect that's been going out into the world of people doing some really wonderful things and having some really wonderful experiences. <laughs> well, you don't have to be a, a online community builder because you're all over the world building community. I mean, truly all over the world. It's so cool. And, and the ripple effect is real. So we're here today because I pledged to you on episode seven that I would do 79 podcast episodes. And of course there was no other person that could be the guest for episode 79. I am so honored to have you for the 79th episode. I'm also happy to say that 
we plan to continue indefinitely. So um, <laughs> it started with 79 episodes and I'm super excited to see uh, where it goes from here. Um, you inspired my wife and her good friend Krithika to do 79 yoga sessions uh, last year, which they did. Uh, they celebrated that. Um, one of the amazing serendipitous things that happened to me over the last year was meeting you and going on a trip to Bhutan together. And the group of people that all went to Bhutan together, we all committed to 79 days leading up to that Bhutan trip. And we all had kind of our own little thing that we would do every day for the 79 days leading up to that trip. So these are just some of the examples of the the things that uh, that you've inspired with this mission. Now, I, I mentioned you being on episode seven, and I, I really encourage people, if you haven't, to go back and listen to episode seven. But for those that may not have heard episode seven, could you just give us a little, uh, this is going to be really hard because there's so much, but could you just give us um, kind of a, a synopsis of your journey leading up to Quest 79, just for context? Oh, okay. Let's go for the fast track route. I, I'm paralyzed from the chest down. That happened when I was 21. Um, somewhere along the way, I've, I, well, I've always had a passion for nature and for outdoors and for being physical in my body. And that helps me feel much better about being paralyzed because I, when I'm moving, there's, we have, a, there's a joke amongst with myself and a few other friends who are paralyzed. If our asses are moving, then we're happy. And you could, <laughs> you could say that at some point in time, that might have been about distraction from something really difficult that's happened. But actually, it's not, it's certainly not about that anymore. It's really just about the, that sheer pleasure that, that, that comes with being outdoors, in nature, moving your body, often with other people where you have that companionship that's just so special where you share an experience and share time in nature and, and have that dissipation of many, so many things and exploration of topics together. So um, I digress. So that's where I ended up becoming a Paralympian somewhere on my journey. I don't, it was kind of accidental, but I, I took part in the London 2012 Paralympics, was incredibly fortunate to go from usually being lapped in races and not even crossing the finish line before it was before it had been removed, I was so slow, to winning a silver medal and then having the option to carry on to another Paralympic Games, which was Rio 2016. In Rio, I won a gold medal. It was a 79th medal for Britain, which struck me as slightly strange given that that summer there'd been a joke with me about asking for my drinks extra hot and a barista telling me to ask for them at 79 degrees. So there was this joke that I was a diva with my hot drinks. And then this number 79, I'd forgotten because I used to be a gold geologist, is the atomic number of gold. And all these weird serendipities with number 79 started occurring. And to be honest, they continue. Like I only last year I found out that all of the major temples in in the Hindu um in, in India all the major Shiva temples are built on the 79th East Meridian and nobody wow. really knows why but there's this whole string of them that are built on this meridian and I my own quest around all of this became well actually wouldn't it be interesting to try and ride seven continents in and do nine rides that was like my seven and nine so the nine rides were the Rio Paralympics and then a speed land speed record like a Guinness land speed record in Nevada and the other rides have all been following coasts and rivers and water, basically kind of water across continents. So um, the rides are all there in episode seven, I think, probably describing what they are, but following the Ganges through India, the River Murray across Australia, the Pacific coast from Canada to Mexico, the Atlantic coast and the Camino de Santiago across Europe, the Ethiopian water, um, the, the water towers of Africa in Ethiopia. Um, I think I've missed a continent somewhere, but um, the uh, the final big continent that was this challenge beyond challenges was Antarctica. How would I do that? What would that look like? And somewhere in the process, I discovered that the intersection of 79 degrees latitude and longitude is right there in the heart of Antarctica, which was very exciting to discover to start with. That is south and west, latitude south and west. Um, and it happens to be only about 79 nautical miles from the base that you can travel into as an explorer or an adventurer person in Antarctica. So it wasn't only 
it was it was this this very unique place that no one's ever been to but also it was actually feasible it wasn't like thousands of miles in the absolute middle of nowhere it is in the middle of nowhere but it was only 79 nautical miles from a place that we could get to so that became the objective and the idea was to go there and create the pole of possibility I got to stop you for a minute. I just, I need to take a deep breath here because there was so much that you just packed in and I know most of this story. So for listeners, um, I just want to recap a couple of things. So, so Karen Dark, the creator of quest 79 has this connection to 79. And what I just heard you say was, I didn't realize this until just now, the intersection of latitude 79 and longitude 79 are in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. And they are 79 nautical miles from the base where you started. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. <laughs> that is incredible. I mean, I just wanted to take in the gravity of that for a minute. So, all right, please please proceed. I just needed a minute to digest that. That was awesome. <laughs> well, good summary. So not, not being a mariner, I'm not very good at nautical miles. So maybe your listeners aren't either. So that's a, basically it's 150 kilometers okay. from the base to the pole of possibility. Not only that, because I became so focused on how do we get there? How do we fundraise for it? How am I going to move across this continent when I can't walk? All of the kind of technical challenges, the health challenges, I can't toilet. Uh, we and poo like people normally do. So there was lots of kind of challenges on all respects to go into such an extreme environment to, to tackle. So that so, so much so that I never really sat down and looked at exactly the details of the route and where it, where this point lies. So it was only two weeks before leaving for Antarctica that my partner was looking on Google Earth and he's like, this is going to be really amazing. Look where it is. He said, you're going to have views of the Ellsworth Mountains and Mount Vinson all the way on this journey. So I started to look at the map with him and really go into where it was. And it just blew my mind. Go, you know, a lot of people who go to the poles have a very extreme and dull experience because they're they're skiing towards a blank white horizon. It's fairly flat. There's nothing to look at. It might be white out. It might be sunny. But essentially, and I had that experience myself a number of years ago skiing across the Greenland ice cap for a month where you're just looking at the same white horizon every day and you're not even sure whether you're going in the right direction one day we didn't we skied for about an hour in the wrong direction (laughs) so i started to get that excited anticipation about this journey just in the few weeks before leaving because i think until then it had always been such a big challenge so intimidating so much to prepare and plan for and to worry about that I'd never really been able to properly go, wow, actually, this could be pretty incredible. So when we got there and and the the team at the base that you go into in Antarctica also looked at us and went, this is incredible. Nobody comes here and does their own journey. Nobody's been here before. You're going into completely unknown territory. It's going to be really beautiful because you're literally circumnavigating the Ellsworth Mountains, which is this high mountain, the highest mountain range in Antarctica. And and that's what it was. It was just this incredible place to to get to travel to and the landscape that we had to travel through to get there. Hey everyone, it's Scott here. Did you know that the members of my real estate team, W Realty Group, are listening to their own voices that call to adventure by setting big goals? Some of those goals include planning trips to Bali and the Kingdom of Bhutan, buying investment homes and running the Chicago Marathon. At W Realty Group, we support and encourage these big goals and want to help turn them into reality. We're currently looking to add new members to the team. If you know a great real estate agent in the Charlotte, North Carolina area that would benefit from being part of our team, please send a text, an email, or give me a call. And know that when you support W Realty Group, you're also supporting this podcast. Thanks for listening. I mean, I can't like most of us are never going to go to where you you were. I mean, so I would love if you could um, just sort of paint a picture for us of what the landscape was like. Could you kind of describe like what it was that you saw? I think I'm going to want to come back to the vision, but you just you just got me so excited. Like, can we just talk about the the place? Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a vast continent, so it's a four hour flight from South America, from the from the tip of South America, from Punta Arenas in the south of Chile mm-hmm. into this base, which is called Union Glacier. 
And so for some of that, you're flying over the um, over the Southern Ocean. And at some point you look at look down and it was clear enough to go, okay, there's a continent down there and it's very white. You know, you can't really tell the difference from the clouds. And gradually as we as we got a bit closer and a little bit lower in the sky, you start to get a feel for the scale of this continent beneath you, which is empty. Nobody lives there. There are no I don't know how how much your listeners know about Antarctica, but essentially there is no Antarctic nationality. There are no towns there. There are, there's no infrastructure there. There's, there's nothing. It's pure, pure wilderness. There are a few scientific bases, which are very, very small. And there are these couple of kind of adventure bases, which are also very small and completely temporary and only up for the very short summer season of about 10 weeks. So basically there's nothing to see. It's pure, pure white ice wilderness. So it's like looking over a giant ocean of ice or looking at a vast sky of infinity, you know, that's what you're looking at. So then when you come down and arrive in this place, you you know, it's exciting and scary. You're coming out into something. The cabin temperature was lowered an hour before we arrived and everyone gets out all of their down jackets and all their big puffy clothes and starts layering up ready for the big arrival. And of course, when you get there, it's very cold and very windy and um it's an experience like nothing you've ever had. You 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 arrive on this blue ice runway, um, the plane's breaking and trying to turn, and you can feel it spinning on the ice and fighting the wind and the the ice and really struggling to turn it around and get it back to somewhere where we could all get off. Uh, and then you you arrive at this little camp and you you you're with a group of other of other special humans and a very unusual group of people because most people that are, that find themselves in Antarctica. Well, they haven't really found themselves. They've got themselves there for some reason. They're either exploring something that's uh, never been explored before, be that in the realms of science or or going into a place no one's ever been like us or telling a story about the people and the uniqueness of people that are attracted to go and work down there. So it's a very unusual and, and, and special and very interesting mix of people that are attracted into this base. And at the base, um, we spent three days there, getting everything ready, prepared, really going into the detail of, you know, the, the devil is in the detail, isn't it? You're going out into the wilderness that we desperately wanted to get going. I just, it was just like, let's set off yeah. tomorrow because then we've got more time to, to get there and get back. And we don't want to, we don't want to come all this way and not get there. So the pressure, you feel the pressure of wanting to leave, but it was that great reminder that unless we prepare really, really well, it could all be lost. You know, it only takes one tiny slither of skin to be exposed and to get frostbite, to not have your nose covered properly and to end up with a, a frostbitten nose or a cold injury for the whole thing to be to be over. I I have so many questions. I apologize in advance because I'm going to stop you a couple of times. So just like I'm trying to create this sort of like this 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 vision for myself. Like, yes, you said it's cold, but now you're starting to paint a picture of like like a little section of skin being exposed and that gets frostbitten. And what what kind of temperatures are we talking about? It depends. So if the wind temperature is the coldest thing, you know, the wind chill. I'm I'm sure there are Arctic Canada or even Scotland this winter, my friend got frostbitten toes and they were turned black and he thought he was going to lose his foot. So it's it's maybe not that extreme, but minus 25 was a pretty typical temperature with, yeah. wind, with wind chill. Celsius. Um, perhaps minus 30 Celsius. Yeah. But remember, we were lower. We were down at um, around 800 meters in altitude. That's where the pole of possibility sits. People that are going up to the polar plateau to ski the last degree and go to the South Pole, they're up at around 3,000 meters or 2,500 meters. And so it's much colder up there. So for them, temperatures like minus 40 Celsius, minus 45. So yeah, pretty pretty extreme. And where we were wasn't as extreme as, as it gets. How did that temperature compare to your adventures in Greenland or other places that you've been? It was, a yeah, a little, a little colder. <laughs> Um, it, I think it's not a problem. It just re means that you have to be very, very vigilant. It's just really being attentive to the details of regularly. Every time you start putting more sun cream on, making sure that your lips are covered. We'd, we'd have a, you know, one of those buffs, those kind of elastic yeah. neck warmers that people yeah. wear. You wear one over your face, over your nose, up underneath your sunglasses with a little hole cut in it to breathe through. And I had that covering my lips all the time. My two teammates often 
had their lips exposed at the beginning and got really, really badly sunburned or windburn lips. So, yeah, just that attention to detail. You don't want to be fiddling with metal on your skis without gloves on. You might get away with it for a few seconds, but you don't want to be doing that. You might risk losing some skin. Um, yeah, you might drink and spill water down your chin and that might freeze and be enough to cause frostbite on your chin. So just, uh, you know, really for us, it wasn't as extreme as we had anticipated in terms of temperature. It was a bit warmer than we expected. We had really good weather. We had lots of sunshine. It's a wind that, that really takes the temperature down. The wind, yeah. And Karen, for you, being paralyzed from the chest down, like how do you manage that aspect? Yeah, I can't feel anything below my chest and I can't regulate. So my blood vessels don't constrict and dilate. So the secret for me is not getting cold in the first place. So again, just real big vigilance. I had a fish tank thermometer measuring the temperature of my two feet, two fish Got tank it. thermometers on wires. So I could quickly check up at my waistband. I had a, a big sleeping bag made like a mermaid style to cover my legs. <laughs> okay. Braces on it, a big fleecy base in it, down on the top, a zip down the front. So I could get in and out of that, put that on top of all of my layers of clothes. I mean, it's almost impossible to move because you're wearing so many things. Yeah. But within that, I could keep the fish tank thermometers, check on the temperature of my feet, have little heat pads in there, put hot water bottles in there. You know, there's ways of kind of keeping that, maintaining that heat in the legs. And then um, the personal care side, I have a catheter. So um, the idea of it leaking or making any mistakes in the plumbing department, it's essentially like a plumbing system, which can come undone at any point. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, I actually did this time. I, I made a mistake and had a, a big disaster with it on about the third day in, but luckily it all worked out okay. Like, yeah, the, the, there was lots to manage and, and even a small mistake, for example, sitting in the same position for too long risks getting a pressure sore. So I had to do a lot of mapping of my body and my bottom and where the pressure was and looking yeah. at where the pressure points were and getting special cushions for that. I mean, lots of detail to the to the to all these little things to make it possible to be in that environment. That is just so the Karen that I know and have gotten to know, like having traveled to Bhutan with you. I mean, there was so much that was planned, but there's so much that was just, you know, left to just sort of trusting that it was all going to work out. And uh, and I think that's just so cool. I, I love that. I mean, and I think that for you, like going on such, you know, for most people, extreme adventures, you have to be that way, right? Yeah. I mean, the unexpected is always going to happen. So I think there's somewhere there's a subtle balance between the kind of cognitive side of really thinking through the detail and planning the detail and being prepared and covering all your bases and having the equipment that you need, you know, all of that level of detail that does require us to use our logical thinking brains. And then there's the other side, which is that kind of more um, intuitive, trusting, go with the flow, see what happens, we'll be all right kind of side. And for me, it's it's some kind of magical mixture of the two that seems to bring things into fruition rather than trusting just one or the other. Um, if we're too rigid and and we we can't succeed because everything's changing and the unexpected is inevitably emerging. But at the same time, if we don't plan well and go into the detail, then we're probably going to miss something really vital. You, you you truly do it magically. Like I am in, we talk about awe in this podcast, like I'm in awe of the way that you're able to balance the planning and the uh, intuitive trusting. It's it's really quite incredible. I, I don't I, I don't know, but it's, it's interesting because I, I think you know that I'm running a, a program in May called Adventure in Possibility, where I'm yeah. helping other people come on a, you know, come and explore this with me for themselves. So it's, 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 it's forcing me to go, yeah, what, what is at the core of making surprising things possible? How do we do that? And what is the, what is the magical mix? And so I'm, I'm now trying to kind of say, look at the formula and help other people with that. So I hope, uh, and suddenly I'm feeling really scared and excited about whether or not I can help other people with it. I've, I've kind of mastered it for myself, but yeah. I mean, I'm pretty positive that's just going to work itself out. I've I've seen it in action personally. So I want to um, I want to go back just um, kind of back to the base where you were and getting started on the trip because I have this question that's I, like I, being very like practical and pragmatic. I'm I'm envisioning the airplane coming down on the ice. Like, what kind of a plane did you come in on? So in the past, it was like a big cargo plane, like a huge big cargo plane. So you'd be sat in 
very noisy, dirty, rough seats. Um, in the last, I think it was the first or the second year they've shifted into a 747. So it was a luxurious passenger plane actually operated by Air Iceland. So an Icelandic crew have, have based themselves in Punta Reynas in Chile for the Antarctic season and they're operating this flight into Union Glacier. It only goes about once every 10 days, so it's not like you go okay. very often. Okay. It's it's not one you just go online and buy a ticket for. <laughs> that was, that was going to be it's, one of my questions. So how do you book that flight? What do you have to do to book a flight like that? Um, so you need to contact the ALE is the name of the business that we went with, Antarctic Logistics and Expeditions. So they basically commission the Air Iceland flight to, to work for them for the season. And they have built the runway and it's a private operation that they've set up. So um, you have to go through them. Yeah. yeah. So 747 is a big plane. How many people are on the flight with you? Yeah, there was only about 30 of us on the flight. So a big plane, okay. a very small number of people. And coming out, I think it was their most busy flight yet. I think there were around 65 or 70 of us on the flight coming out. Um, and, you know, it raises all of these questions about impact. So one of the one of the things that really struck me when we got to Antarctica and began our journey is... It's this pristine place. It's absolutely pristine. It is beautiful and pure and untouched and shimmering in light and, you know, just absolutely. There's no wildlife. There's, there's, I think there's a few lichens that manage to live in this area in the middle of Antarctica. On the coast, it's different. That's where all the penguins are and the whales and the wildlife. But in the interior, there's nothing. And no one's been there. And so when you leave a ski trail, it's like a, a scar on the landscape that you notice you're leaving. When you, we, we had a policy of leave no trace, so carry everything out that we took in. Yeah. So the only things we left were urine and our ski trails, but returning our tracks and seeing our trails and our urine stains from the way out like two weeks earlier, it's like, okay, that's not okay either. That's too much. That feels like we've had an impact that maybe don't we don't want to have had. So it raises a lot of questions about how we live in general. You know, we wouldn't even think about, about these things anywhere else in the world. You wouldn't see the stains of, of the impacts of man quite as starkly as you do in a continent as pure as Antarctica. But it, yeah, you know, it just raises those interesting questions of how how and when and why do we travel and how do we mm. how do we stack it up like what's you know my questions were what's the value of us going to antarctica and sharing this continent and sharing the story and the things that we learned through this journey how do how, how does that balance with the impact that we've had so i mean we triple offset our journey so that felt really important in terms of a carbon footprint but also Offsetting carbon isn't as good as not creating it in the first place. How did you guys do that? You said you triple offset. So we calculated our carbon footprint. So there are calculators online where you can put in your air miles and other aspects of the journey, which will be producing carbon. And, and you work out a kind of tons, a carbon, tons of carbon imprint of the journey. And then you can, there are various places that you can basically then invest money to offset that footprint so we worked out our footprint we tripled it i think it was 45 tons of carbon was the tripled footprint and then we've invested in trees and also in a blue offsets um project which is basically sort of aqua marine offset projects things like mangrove swamps and sea grasses which absorb carbon quicker than just doing it uh trees obviously will soak up carbon, but it takes a lot longer. And depending on the quality of the project, it's not always that successful. The trees may die or it may not be that great at absorbing carbon and has a much longer time scale. Um, and I think the the, clim the climate change impacts that we're seeing already are happening so fast now that it's almost you know too late. There's, there is the research that we went into with our journey and the professor who joined us and his knowledge of of his specialist subject is the value of nature and environment environmental economics we can't stop climate change from happening we can't reverse it so it's really raised questions for all of us about when do we choose to travel 
how do we offset it is offsetting it really okay what can we do to just generally live with less imprint on our planet and i think a lot of that begins with how we live on a day-to-day -day basis you know it's made me really i i've never been hugely materialistic anyway but i'd rather upcycle recycle you know share give away rather than be buying new things all the time that are just creating more and more of that consumer footprint on the planet so yeah yeah and um i mean that is pretty impactful like you're coming back i think you said 10 days later looking at your own tracks and your own deposits and like that's just you guys how many people were in your group there were five of us in our group so that's just five people <laughs> you know multiply that by billions right yeah, um, and the, Antar the Antarctic Treaty is in place to protect Antarctica. So until 2041, I think it is, um, nobody's allowed to lay claim to Antarctica. Nobody's allowed to mine in Antarctica. The kind of the continent is very well protected until then. But we live in a world where money money drives, and unfortunately, it's what so many governments and people value more than anything else. And so. Whether or not um, that treaty will be continued and continue to protect the continent is unknown. And the impact that will have once, you know, if people go in there and start mining operations and uh, oil operations is going to be absolutely massive in terms of the impact on that continent and then also on a global scale. Well, I think that's why, you know, like this trip that you did and then returning your hero's journey, you you followed your own voice that called to adventure and, and went on this trip, but now you're back and you're able from your own perspective to be able to educate people on what's going on there. I mean, even in this short conversation that we're having, like I see the value of what you're talking about. And, you know, I can see in your eyes, like we're on the, you know, video here and I can, I can see like the impact that it had on you environmentally. I mean, you were already a very environmentally conscious person, but I can see that it's had a deep impact on you. It has, but you know, I'm not, I'm not advocating that I'm, I've, I haven't, I'm still flying. I'm still going places. And really, we've got to, you know, how do we, I suppose what I fundamentally believe is that the value of travel and of learning about other cultures and places and connecting with other human beings around the planet is absolutely enormous. And so I'm not, I'm not convinced that we should, we should that we should stop that completely. But I, I guess I'm kind of looking at, well, how can We've got incredible brains and abilities when we collectively join together. We can develop incredible technology. You know, I don't know how many, 50 years ago, someone in my position would not be alive. There would be no catheters. There would be no anal irrigation. There would be no handbike that could take you to Antarctica. There'd be, none of, there'd be no wheelchair that I could use. There are still people, many people in the world who don't have these technologies, who, who, who don't survive paralysis because they don't have that medical or mechanical technology. So may, I suppose part of what I'm, I'm sort of feeling with the pole of possibility is about reminding us all of what we can do collectively together with our incredible minds and our incredible hearts and, and the technology that we can develop. And how do we overcome some of these big global problems that means that it's not just about stopping traveling and going back to primitive ways of living, but to advancing into a new way of doing things that's uh, embracing all of that. Mm. Wouldn't it be amazing? And that's a, a phrase that yeah. you, you kind of coined. And we talk about that in episode seven. Um, Karen, I want to, can you take us on the journey? Let's go back to the base. Can you, can you kind of take us through the, the journey that you made to the intersection of 79 and 79? Mm, so we uh, were a team of three. My, I was with two mics, so I had to, we had to d distinguish between them. So Professor Mike and Filmmaker Mike, or Professor Mike was Mike and Filmmaker Mike was Mikey. So okay. Mikey, Mike and myself. And then we met two guides in Antarctica, two women, a Chilean woman called Bibi, Bibiana, and a Swiss woman who lives in Baffin Island called Celine. So they both have Antarctic experience. They weren't guiding us because no one's ever been here before. It wasn't a place someone could guide us to. Sure. We were, we, but we had their experience and their skills of having done a number, a couple of seasons in Antarctica to help keep us safe. Um, and so we, we met them. We got to know them. They'd never seen a sit ski before. So we spent some time going around a 10K loop from the base together, uh, putting a tent up, just looking at how we would do things as a team preparing the details and then we we began the journey we were dropped off just 20 kilometers down the glacier from union glacier in a in a kind of all-terrain vehicle 
which actually I wish we hadn't done. We could have just set off from the base. We didn't really need to do that. I think it was that pressure of, well, this point they dropped us at was 79 nautical miles from the pole of possibility. And we thought, okay, that will be, that's a good place to start. And then we'll definitely have, you know, hopefully we'll have time to get there, but actually we would have had time to have gone from the base and all the way there and all the way back. So we began skiing, just, you know, just dropped off in the middle of nowhere at this 79 nautical mile place, <laughs> just a white place. And um, we have, a, we had a series of GPS points given to us by, the, the the travel safety team who basically the guys at base who had the satellite imagery and they'd picked from satellite imagery a route that they thought looked like the safest route to cross a shear zone so the pole of possibility is on sea ice and we had to cross from land ice to the sea ice so it meant that the la the sea ice is moving at about a meter a day and so where it joins with the the ice that's on land it's like a big zone of crevasses and upheaval and disruption wow. You know, a bit like a big fault zone, if you like. So nobody knew what the fault zone would be like. We didn't know if we'd be able to cross it, how many crevasses there'd be, how big they'd be, what we'd find. So basically, that was the big unknown: was to get to the edge of this shear zone and look at it and assess: can we can we get through it safely? Can we actually even get to the pole of possibility? So that was kind of the big excitement and fear that we'd get there and it would just be impossible to cross onto the sea ice. But um, Luckily, it wasn't. It was fairly innocuous compared to what it, it might have been. There were some big lumps of ice where they, you know, it's kind of like the the, the, the shear between the sea and the land pushes these blocks of ice up, mm -hmm. creates some disruption, but lots of crevasses. But we were able to to rope up and and ski through that terrain together um, across to arrive at the pole of possibility. Uh, every day we did about nine to ten hours of skiing. Uh, we'd get up about 6.30 in the morning, start skiing by 9, and then we'd ski for an hour or an hour and 20 minutes, take a very short break to refuel and drink and go again. And in that time, you're really not speaking to each other. You're in a straight line. You only get to chat to each other in the breaks. You're just dropping into a very, I guess, a very hypnotic space of mm -hmm. just yeah. being in this big, spacious wilderness. And that takes you to interesting places in your mind, sometimes into total silence and appreciation and gratitude and, and awe, and sometimes into extreme struggle of like, oh my goodness, we've still got another hour to go before we get a break, before I can drink anything, and this is endless and that kind of thing. So it's quite a journey within as well as a journey outward. So are there some, I guess I want to say highlights for you on that inner journey? What were some of the some of the things that happened for you yeah the high so the highlights for me were that i didn't i didn't find it a struggle so once upon a time when i first experienced this kind of environment was in greenland skiing across the greenland ice cap and i found it really hard i spent hours going into like a stress mode of thinking about what to think about because my brain and my body was so wired to be thinking about stuff all the time or planning stuff all the time and then to have nobody to talk to and nothing to think about was like ah stress so that was interesting because this time was a very different experience for me it was almost just a pleasure to go into that zone where we're free of thought and free of anything other than just being absolutely present with where we are and appreciating the place we were in so that was a new experience for me in that kind of context. I didn't know how it would be. But um, so, for example, some of my incredible moments were the way the light catches the ice crystals. You get these really uh, big crystals of ice can form on the surface where the humidity has come up through the up through the through the ice and then form these crystals and the light hits it. And it scatters a light into all colors of the rainbow. So you're going along and you're literally moving through this glittering place. And some days the glitter was just one color, like a silvery gold color. And some days it was just multicolored, every color of the rainbow. And I don't know the exact physics behind that, but I think it's something to do with the, the size of the crystals and how it refracts the light and so on. But um, I mean, amazing. So you're skiing through it, just thinking, wow, what a beautiful place. Like you can't replicate this anywhere in, in the world. It's just other otherworldly and wow. very special 
And I, I, I mean, it sounds magical. And you said that this was, um, it wasn't a struggle for you where it kind of had been in the past. And I'm just curious because you've spent a lot of time, even recently, really focusing more on what you call inner gold, right? It's this sort of like intentional, just connecting with your inner self. And I'm just curious if like that work has played a factor in the experience that you had versus when you said when you were in Greenland, it was a lot more of a mental struggle. Do you feel like maybe you were just naturally more practiced? I guess so. I, 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 I think maybe what I kind of figure is that when we struggle in life, when we find stuff hard, perhaps it's because we're focused on the gap between where we are and maybe where we want to be or where we think we should be. So when I think about the struggle in Greenland, it was a mental struggle and a physical struggle, but the struggle was more inside myself of like, are we ever going to get there? This is going on forever. It was like really focused on the gap between where we were and where we would need to be when we got to the other side. Somehow when we, when we stop focusing on the gap and we're just where we are, then the struggle falls away. Because we don't need to be anywhere else other than where other than where we are, if that makes sense. <laughs> it makes total sense, and it's so well said. So you guys made it to the intersection of 79 and 79, which you've called the pole of possibility, and you referenced that a couple of times. But can you tell us, how did, how did it get that name, the pole of possibility? Can you talk about that a little bit? Um, so, I mean, the, the idea of creating a pole of possibility came up a long, long time ago, like 10 years ago, before it, before the number 79 had even come into my life and all this craziness had begun. But um, it was with an ex-partner of mine. I can't remember exactly which one of us came up with a name, but it was like, you know what? People go to Antarctica and they go to the South Pole, but it looks a bit flat and boring and everyone goes there. You just need to have a lot of money. Not everyone, but quite a lot of people. There's a place called the Pole of Inaccessibility, which is the place that's furthest from every other point on the coast of Antarctica. So it's like the most remote pole. Okay. And I, it was like, mm, well, we could just have our own pole. It'd be like the pole of possibility about what's possible with, with, a, with, a, with a good mindset and the right people and, and the right technology, etc. Um, and I didn't know 10 years ago where it would be, and it, it took 10 years for it to come to fruition. But yeah, somewhere along the way it did. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a big question. And this is like, really, it's a thread throughout your entire life, this this question, what is possible? And I'm wondering, like, do you do you ever surprise yourself <laughs> about what's possible? Because I think so many people look at you, I mean, you are like the epitome of of a person that's just embraced life and just, you know, you're always challenging that pole of possibility. Do you ever, do you surprise yourself in what's possible? I mean, I don't even know if I've scratched the surface. I'm sure, I'm sure, there's, <laughs> I'm sure there's people out there making far more crazy, you know, like crazy, incredible things possible on a much bigger scale. I'm only really practiced at it in my own sort of little sphere. So I don't know whether I'm a master of it or not, but um. Yeah, of course I'm surprised. Like I often think back to the to the days when I was first paralyzed where I was laid in a hospital bed looking at a, a polystyrene ceiling, feeling a bit sorry for myself, thinking my life was over and I wouldn't be able to do anything anymore or visit places I love to be in anymore. And times when I've got really gloomy thinking, well, I'm going to be on my own all my life. Like no one's going to want to be with someone in a wheelchair that can't do all this stuff. Like all the stories we go into about about how things are not going to be possible and the kind of pity parties that we that we have and it's okay to have them it's fine but it's it doesn't make life much fun if we're having them all the time so you know I might occasionally have a mini I don't even know if I do have pity parties anymore if I'm honest but you know you have a you have a realization that maybe you're focusing a bit negatively or thinking uh in a limited way about something and that's normal it's human even with all the experiences and, and positive thinking that we might apply, it's it's something that still happens. But I think what's what's what, what I think is most important is having the awareness of the awareness of what we're doing with our with our thoughts and with our narratives, and then working to when we've got the awareness, we've got a choice to change them to something that's that's more positive that creates more possibility. 
to ask questions instead of just having things as, as a fixed outcome that's maybe not very desirable. Um, and I think as soon, as soon as we start to notice what we're telling ourselves and the language that we're using, then we've got the option to mix it up and try different stories out. And, you know, my whole Olympic thing, I used to go around saying, I'm not, a, I'm not an athlete, I'm, I'm really good at going slowly. And then one day you go, why am I saying this? Like, I'm trying to get to a Paralympics. Why am I? It's not helpful to keep telling myself I'm not an athlete and I'm really good at going slowly. So let's, what's the next most believable thing I could try and tell myself? And it's like, well, let's have an experiment with it. I think, like, I think what's really important is to play with life, like to notice what we're telling ourselves. And sometimes it's a bit stuck and it can be a bit serious. And then it's like, let's just start playing with it. How can we try and have fun with it and just see? hey, I wonder if I call that person up and just share this idea. I wonder what they might say and let's see what happens. And gradually, the more you do that, the more kind of incredible little surprising things start to happen. <laughs> I love this so much. Um, Karen, this expedition in Antarctica was the completion of your Quest 79. And I'm I'm just curious, like, how do you feel like now that it's over and what's next? <laughs> I mean, honestly, I got back in January and people kept saying to me, what's next? And it's like, I don't know, It's a, for once there's a big space, it's like there's a bit of a vacuum and that's okay. Like, I think I think sometimes we need the space to to feel into what's just been and, and feel what's coming next. I don't have a big hit list of things. And sometimes I come up with an idea and actually there is an idea that's emerged and it came from a conversation in the tent in Antarctica where Mikey, the filmmaker said, uh, we've met all these people climbing the seven summits. And, and I was like, Oh, there's a few people in wheelchairs being up Kilimanjaro. Oh, I'd love to go up Kilimanjaro. And I know you've been up Kilimanjaro. Mm. And then it's like, I have a friend in, Af in Kenya who uh, keeps inviting me over to help with a, with a world mental health project. And, um, yeah, suddenly I think we're taking the bike that uh, I took to Antarctica that didn't make it to the pole because I had to use a ski instead. We're going to try and take it up Kilimanjaro in wow. uh, in September. So <laughs> that's amazing. I love that. That is incredible. You know, just with this Quest seventy nine, sort of, you've just inspired so many people. It's just been it's been such an epic journey. If if people that are listening, they want to get more involved in Quest seventy nine, how can they do that? Well, you know, it's a really great question, but also an interesting one that I'm looking at myself at the moment because I know that I stay alive by things that are becoming fresh and new and shifting and changing. And Quest 79, well, began back in 2016 and loads of people have done quests and we have a website, it's quest79.com, but the website isn't functioning right now and it's been kind of blocked, I think, for a little while. And it's kind of like, am I taking it forward in a new in a new way? I think what it's morphing into is more this concept of how do we find the gold inside of us, like that journey of inner gold. And it might be through taking it. It's often through taking a quest. And so I'm not trying to turn it in. I'm not really on a on a on a project at the moment to build a big community or to have a big online presence with it, but just to keep talking about it. And if people are listening and they like the idea, then drop me a line, drop me an email. We do have a newsletter that goes out every month and I'm keeping, I want to keep that alive, sharing stories so that people can be inspired and to keep inspiring each other with lovely ideas about how we can go out and keep learning and growing as humans and surprising ourselves. And when we surprise ourselves, we usually surprise people around us and that maybe inspires them to go and do something. So um, yeah. Basically, hopefully I'll get the website working again soon, but otherwise just drop me a line at karendark.com and let me know what you're up to and I'll keep sharing the stories so that the, 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 the yeah all these stories that are out there can keep helping others. And you also have a retreat that you're putting together called Adventure in Possibility, and that's coming up. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So I guess the pole of possibility really made me go, I really, you know, I guess my my next is, you know, at one point adventuring was for me and it was to, I, the, I was driven by that kind of more selfish 
motivation of seeing places and visiting places. But my rides across the continents with the Quest 79 project, each of them has really taught me about something very special, like a particular thing. So, for example, the ride to Australia was all about gratitude. And at the end of it, I had such overwhelming feelings of appreciation for for things as simple as a drinking a glass of water <laughs> that it was mind-blowing and the journey through India was all about love like the kindness and the love that we received from the people we met was incredible the the friend the two friends that I did with it um did it with they married on the Ganges the river Ganges at the end like it really was this deep immersion in what it's like when we when we're surrounded by a lot of love and kindness so each journey has taught me something so um now I want to put I am putting together and the first one is in May an adventure in possibility that people can join me in wherever that location might be physically um but I'll probably start as something that's a bit ongoing as well that people can join virtually just to explore these themes of possibility and how we enable surprising outcomes for ourselves and it's not always about outcomes as in you know climbing a mountain or getting to a place it's not like necessarily the physical outcome of something but also the that inner journey the internal the internal process that we're all on how do we find more harmony more happiness more peace within ourselves because ultimately that's what life's about it's uh we can keep jumping from one adventure in the outer world to another but actually often when we're doing that there's maybe something inside that's still not very peaceful or something that's uh needing a little bit of attention or a little bit of healing maybe. So I'm kind of really interested in helping people do surprising things in the outer world, but also in the inner world, like really finding more of a place of peace and harmony and balance inside. So, Well, yeah. adventure and possibility sounds like a perfect way to help people do that. Karen, I want to congratulate you on completing your Quest 79. It was about as epic as they come. I want to thank you for inspiring me to do 79 podcast episodes. And when we finish recording here, that'll be done. So thank you. Well, <laughs> and, and thank you just for inspiring. I mean, you see it every day, just all of the people that um, have rallied behind you and have pledged their own quest 79s. It's, it's super, super inspiring. And I just, I just thank you so much from the bottom of my part. And I'm proud to know you. Likewise, Scott, thank you. And yeah, I just think the world is, you know, it's very easy to focus on all the things that are wrong and the problems and the difficulties. And actually, it's a very magical place as well. And we can we can make magical things happen, especially when we when we when we work together and yeah, yeah. to stretch ourselves a little. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. And for those listening, I hope that you've been inspired today as much as I have. I hope that Karen's story has encouraged you to listen to the voice inside that calls you to adventure, because we want to hear your story next. If you have a story to tell or you just need a nudge to create one, please send us an email. We'd also appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word by leaving a review and sharing or tagging Inspire Campfire in your social media. And until next time, I want to encourage you to get outside. Thank you for listening. Karen, thank you so much for being here. Thanks. <laughs>